H-Word Podcast. Hi, everybody. It's July. Oh, yeah, it is July. Uh, I'm Becky. I'm Dan. Dan, are you sitting down? No. I do the podcast standing up now. Did you know that? Yes. And you know what? Today, I am doing that as well. Really? Yeah, I, I just... thought you were about to give me some harsh news. I know. I did that on purpose. Um, I'm a very clever person. <laughs> uh, I agree. <laughs> Whatever. I know. Um, I didn't. I shouldn't have complimented myself ever. Um, <laughs> but I am standing, still standing, and um, it feels uh, weird. Does it? Yeah. You, do you, like, give yourself a bit of a stance. What I do is I like, I stand like um, I'm about to start a race, but you know, not quite so low to the ground. Oh, okay, okay, cool. Um, yeah. How you doing? I'm okay. I'm okay. Yeah. You know, the mask wars continue. Oh yeah, how are you feeling about that? I ha- yeah. What you what? Well, I was feeling bad because I said that everybody should wear masks everywhere, and now I'm like, I like not wearing a mask outside. There's lots of open spaces around here. And that is something I am very grateful for is that I live near open spaces. Yes. To not uh, to not be required to be in a dense situation at all times is uh, – I feel very lucky. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. So what are the mask wars that you're experiencing or, or watching? Oh, the mask wars are online mostly. Um, but someone was recently uh, killed – in um, the Halliburton region, which is about an hour north of Toronto. Right. Um, a man in his, I think, 60s or 70s went to a grocery store, refused to wear a mask, was asked to leave, um, but got violent or got, got very aggressive. The police were called. The police followed his car yeah. home. There was an altercation. He was shot and killed by police. Um and all about not wearing a mask. Guys, this is very upsetting. Um, okay, sorry. No, it's okay. Well, here's the... This isn't hopeful, I guess, but here's the news, the news item that jumped out to me uh, today from the Ottawa Citizen. Is yes. that, did you know that in Oakville, Ontario, about a half hour drive from here... I um, know what you're going to say. Yeah, of course you do. Um, you got family in Oakville, right? I do. There's a um, memorial, war memorial, to SS soldiers who fought under Hitler. Yeah. Ukrainian Canadians. And and um, somebody spray-painted Nazi monument on it. And mm-hmm. that act of vandalism is now being pursued as a hate crime. Yes. Now, so. did you hear that the head of the Anti-Jewish Defamation League is fine with the monument staying up? No. Yes, That's, I. Be- I don't know. That is that is true. Um, it, it is about uh, which is inter- I found very interesting because I think it speaks to the idea of ongoing oppression and monuments place in uh, specifically like in context and visibility and this kind of thing. It's not a statue of anyone, um, but it is a monument to SS soldiers, which which uh, the Ukrainian community staunchly defines as freedom fighters against Soviet occupation of the Ukraine at the time and ongoing and, and so by symbolically ongoing Soviet occupation of the Ukraine right or of Ukraine right um, and so the the head of the anti-jewish defamation League was saying 
that, uh, you know, he's not going to advocate for further monuments, but he's also not in favor of taking this monument down. Yeah, I've heard some interesting arguments about keeping monuments up and giving them context, too. And actually, yesterday I was watching a live stream. I recommend this. They're doing it on um, Tuesdays and Thursdays at 4.20 Eastern time is bit, the bit players, Chris Siddiqui and Nigel Danner. Yes. I watched that yesterday. Yeah. Did you watch the one with the dads? Yeah. Yeah. And so um, Nigel's dad, I believe his name is Linton Downer, who's a yeah. tailor. He was talking about how he didn't want statues to come down because there's been so much erasure I'm paraphrasing, but so much erasure of black history that the concern or, or anyway, that there was concern that the removal of statues would also remove the history and that anyway, it was an interesting discussion. I've been hearing more conversation in that regard. Mm-hmm. Like if we just fill our streets with like images of hope, we are also potentially erasing the, the harmful histories of our region. So I don't know where, where I stand on that anymore. Really? Because of Mr. Downer? Well, no, I've heard other stuff online too, as far as like colonial statues in Canada and like, should we leave them up and repaint them or it's, it's not been the resounding chorus, but I'm, I would put myself in the position of listening right now. Hmm. I mean, yeah, I, I support everybody who toppled a, a statue into the river, but I'm also listening to arguments about what do we do to remember horrors. Sure. I'm all about history, but I think history just hasn't been fair. No. Generally, yeah. Um, It hasn't. Do you you have any hopefuls this week? Um, Mine's not a hopeful, but it's a curiosity. Okay. but it has very tangentially to do with hope. I watched a documentary today on CBC Gem. We're, <laughs> we're plugging a lot of gem right now. Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. Bit players on CBC Gem. <laughs> um, it's called Hashtag Blessed. It is about a evangelical church that is catering to millennials in downtown Toronto. And it has, I don't know if this is big or not, but a 1,500 person following. That seems big. Yeah, they have they have three churches, one in the east, one in the west, one in the north. And this documentary was about the people involved. And it's uh, very interesting um, okay. because it's like, you know, lots of like tattoos and young people and then like singing so like uh, so, so enthusiastically. And you know, that goes on for about 25 minutes. And then you get to this point where like a gay a gay person sort of brings up their homosexuality to the pastor and like the pastor basically they they do that they do it they speak very diplomatically and say he did not convince me to break up with my girlfriend but I did go home and break up with my girlfriend yeah <laughs> um oh. and so yeah there's like this very uh and, and so it ultimately it, it amounts to you know, the perspective of the documentary is that it's people working through their trauma. It's essentially like just a sort of free therapy um, kind of thing. And then people sort of let it go as it's after it serves their purpose or whatever. But like, so, so interesting that it's like evangelical Christianity. Um, I don't trust sparking it. Sparking people up. No, I don't trust it either. Okay. But it, okay, good. but it, I mean, but not it, good, it, just, but it is, it is like, um, like one person described it as like, what were you looking for? And it was like, I was looking for unconditional love. And it was like someone else was involved because they were like a survivor of sexual abuse. And it was like, okay, so this is like, this is like 
helping people with trauma and uh and it's because it's it's it, because it's available and like and like um it offers a set of rules for people that feel like they have that that, that it feel they're lost huh yeah well we're i mean I guess we're always in a time of searching, but it definitely feels like we're searching now. There's a lot to be searching for. Yeah. And you have asked uh, most guests if, you know, what their spiritual life is like. I think I'm going to stop doing that because the last two were like, stop it. (laughs) Or just what? Like, I think it's a weird presumption on my part. And actually, I just thought about that um, after the last interview was, why am I doing this? Mm. It's really imposing my own stuff on people, and I'm allowed to have my own feelings and experiences, but I don't need to. I'm and I'm asking people out of the blue. <laughs> why? Mm-hmm. Why am I doing that? <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I, I. My hopeful this week is actually um, totally wrapped up in the interview I did. Okay. And it's um, similar to last week or two weeks ago because I mentioned, I mentioned her. It's an uh, interview with Saida Trujillo, who's uh, was my other roommate from theater school, along with Maria Aaron Jones, and she did just um, just got to Roswell, New Mexico, on a cross country trip with her cat mm. <laughs> during a pandemic, and um, just is an incredible, wonderful human being, and super, super duper inspiring to me. Fantastic. So I'm just gonna leave my hope there. <laughs> Great. I will listen. Okay, bye, Dad. Okay, bye. Uh, Hi, everybody. It's Becky. I'm back. And I am really grateful and delighted to be joined all the way from Roswell, New Mexico, by my old friend, Saida Trujillo. Hello, Saida. Hi, Becky. Hi. (laughs) Hi. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm doing good. Um, what's yeah. the what's the weather like in Roswell? It's so hot. It's like over a hundred degrees. Okay. It's probably a hundred and ten or so. Wow, that's a lot. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Okay. Um, that's just because sometimes we do the weather report, and I figured I wanted to see what was happening in Albu- or in um, New Mexico. In Roswell. in Roswell. Yeah. It's actually ninety-seven, and that's Fahrenheit. So, do you understand Fahrenheit? A little bit. It's it's thirty-six. Thirty-six. Uh, in the other, Celsius. the other way. Yeah, that's Celsius. Yeah, <laughs> non Fahrenheit. That's non Fahrenheit. Yeah, yeah. Um, Celsius. Saida, who are you in this world? How would you like to introduce yourself to the listeners? I am um, the daughter of immigrants, Guatemalan immigrants. Um, I am an immigrant myself. I was born in Montreal, Canada. Mm-hmm. Uh, my parents uh, eloped. They went to Canada in the 70s when there was a civil war in Guatemala. And that's how I was born in Montreal. And then um, when I was five, we moved back to Guatemala and uh, I lived there for five years. And then when I was 10, we came to Los Angeles. Uh, so I grew up in the U.S. Um, I So I'm an immigrant. Um that's part of my identity, and I'm sure we'll get to that later as we keep talking, Becky. Mm-hmm. But it's a big part of my introduction because um, I'm really trying to own that and um, 
being an immigrant places me in this in-between place that I always felt was a, a deficit. And I've just started to actually own that space. So this immigrant space, this in-betweenness is real and it's where I'm from and it's who I am, a big part of who I am. But I'm also in that in-between space. I am a theater maker and I'm an educator. I, um, I teach voice and movement and I create theater, uh, solo work and also sometimes in ensemble. Um, that's, that's me. And we had talked before a little bit, but you were trying to describe something that is, they're very new thoughts to me, but about what the definition is of a person of color or a woman of color or not definition, but what space that occupies. Yeah. Um, it's uh, this this thing about uh, how we identify or how we introduce ourselves. Uh, uh, this term, person of color, people, woman of color, is something that um, is part of my vocabulary. And I, I'm writing a chapter for a book that is on decolonizing theater pedagogy and training. And in it, I find myself writing about this very thing. Um, and in, in it, I try to explain to my mother what this term means. And I, I'm really in the middle of that, Becky. I'm yeah. trying to really find out what, who is this term for? Um, it feels like uh, another attempt for us immigrants or other people um, to attempt at having voice, uh, a voice at, at the table. Uh, it's also, it feels sometimes like it's a term for white people to feel good about themselves. So they have a way to uh, refer to us in a way that they feel like they're including us. But, but we, we're, we, we're not there yet. So it's funny, uh, this term, I, it's a political term and, and I, and I need to use it because that's where we are in the world and in the country. But it's funny. It's funny to me sometimes. Like it's, it's a term that it, it, it's still, I, I'm questioning who is this term for? Yeah. Who is it for? Yeah. Well, this is interesting too, because you're bringing to me, I hear a point coming up about, um, about maybe the notion that when the goal isn't to arrive somewhere, the goal is to keep the journey going, if that makes sense. So no term that we choose is going to be correct. We, we have to accept that we're going to keep trying things and needing to adjust. Yeah. Does that feel right? Yes. All right. So, um, we went to theater school together. Uh, I've also already interviewed Maria Aaron Jones. She was our other roommate. And the three of us were roommates together. This was in 1998-1999 at the Del Arte International School of Physical Theater. And you subsequently did some performance work with them and then became a faculty member. Yeah. Yeah, I can't believe it's been 21 years. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, it's crazy. We were at Del Arte and I've oft, uh, I'm trying to reconcile a lot of things right now. One of them is that Del Arte, I always felt like Del Arte was like uh, my passport to this feeling that I would make theater anywhere, anytime, 
forever, you know? Yeah. Uh, there was a kind of freedom and, and empowerment that I felt as a result of that year. Um, and yeah, after Delarte, I worked on and off with the company um, as a guest, I guess, as a guest member and toured with them. And then um, uh, four years ago, I was hired to to teach voice and to develop a voice um, program that would complement the three-year MFA program that they've had now for maybe 10 years. I think more. A little more? I think. I thought about applying into it once, but I couldn't because I didn't have an undergrad degree. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Yeah. They. Yeah. So maybe it is more. Maybe... Anyway, yeah, it's yeah. it's been a few years, it's few more than ten years then for, that they've had the MFA program. And when yeah. you when you say voice, what do you mean? Physical voice? Yeah. So you know, I okay, I trained as an actor, right? At at CalArts, I got a, a, a an act, an acting degree, yep. uh, and then I went to Delarte, and that was for a while my my graduate work because that PTP, which is the one year program. Uh, did count as a kind of graduate work. Right. And when I was teaching university, it was always counted, even though it's not a, uh, an MFA, they didn't have an MFA then. But then I, I went to study voice and I, and I got an, a master's in voice, uh, at the central school of speech and drama in London. And my interest when I went to study voice was, um, actually not to change careers. Like I still, thought of and think of myself as a theater maker, but I wanted to study voice to be able to really integrate uh, the movement training that I have with voice and actually not, uh, yeah, integrate them. Because in theater schools, you usually study movement and you study voice. And I never imagined that I would be teaching at Delarte. In fact, when I went to study voice, I thought, you know, I'm probably going to end up working with choreographers or dancers, because every time I saw dancers trying to do text on stage, I always felt like, oh my God, like, yeah. how can I, how can, you know, because the, the, the body spoke so clearly and then they just kind of mumbled or at least the, the work that I would see when I, when I was in New York. And, and so I thought, I'm sure there is a way to kind of break into that and work with dancers or, you know, but anyway, Delarte kept, I guess they kept following me. And as soon as I finished school, finished my voice degree, they started reaching out to me and saying, hey, would you ever consider coming to Delarte to teach voice? So when I say they asked me to come and develop this curriculum to complement the MFA program, I felt like this is perfect because it's actually, you know, it's theater and exactly that. I felt like I could invest in something that was called the physical voice yeah. and in that it didn't, that where we look at the body as a container uh, that holds all of our experiences, you know, physical and oral, like um, sound, right? And so, yeah, that's yeah, when the the work that I do uh, and did at Delarte these last three and a half years um, has been really profound uh, exploration and really decolonization of even the ways that I've learned uh, the voice methods that I know because right. they come from Europe. You know, I I'm mostly 
have been trained in Linklater uh, voice and Fitzmorris and uh, I mean I work with all what you would say the the great voice masters you know um, and they're all in Europe yeah. and so the masters it's been the masters yes and so it's been really interesting to to know that that's my training and accept that but also give myself permission to to change it and to so so that's what I've been doing at Del Arte and that part has been pretty amazing it's um it's interesting so for people listening who don't have the same sort of educational touchstones that Saida or I might have it's actually quite radical to take ownership of this work and not to just serve your master and their master and their master, which is such a fucked up thing to say, but that's kind of the pedagogical base that I remember anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Um, let's rewind a little bit. And would you mind sharing what drew you to theater in the first place? Yeah. Um, when I was, uh, I started making theater or coming to first, uh, to a theater training program when I was 14 and it was a program in East LA where I lived and um it was amazing um and I, I came to it uh, as a kind of refuge I I did not it was those those years for me were really hard one that I had just moved to this country and I didn't speak the language and my parents divorced and I, I didn't it was a very hard time and I didn't want to be home. And somehow I came to this program and and the minute I went to this program, I felt uh, a great sense of possibility uh, to be seen and heard. And uh, some of the people I met in that program are still in my life. And some of them actually is still my mentors. Um, So I came to theater as a, or I guess I stayed in theater because I found a refuge and in the, a place where I, where I could uh, really express myself. Um, And yeah, uh, it's crazy to think back to that experience and how one thing, one decision to go to this theater workshop, right. And, and it changed my life in that, the ways in which it has changed my life, I'm having to re-examine now because what seemed and what is what what was really good about that experience is also quite painful now. And those things are this, that when I say I found a place where I could express myself fully, I think part of that experience was my own need to survive um, and, and feeling like in wanting to believe that theater was going to be the language that didn't have borders. The, the theater was going to be my path so that I could have entry into any space. And in some ways I have, you know, I've been to really expensive schools, like my education is made up of three very unique, rich schools or very privileged schools. Um, How did I do that? I don't know because I don't come from wealth, uh, financial wealth. Um, So 
I am now in the state of the world and the country having to really look at uh, how that's not true. I have not, as a, going back to the person of color thing, I, I, I don't have the same, I, I don't have a pass that doesn't, ha- that, that, that opens borders for me in, in theater. It, it has been my own doing, my own survival, my own resilience that has made me in certain kinds of behavior I've, ad- I've ad- adopted to be able to survive and to, and to gain, it's really tricky because I am who I am. Um, and I'm proud of what I do and who I am, but the price I've paid is too much. Yeah. I've, I've uprooted, I uprooted myself from my own, from my family. My own family sent me away thinking that that was the only way for me to become better. And, uh, there's a lot of pain in there what it means to be better than your parents, you know, in this system, it's not okay. Yeah. Your parents were never lacking. No. So that's something I'm coming to, you know, it's like my mother is what I, what I can learn from my mother is more valuable than any degree I earned in, in Europe or in the U S um, because in the end, what my mother has experienced as an immigrant in her work experience, you know, in, in, in the companies that she's worked, I'm not being sheltered. I'm not being sheltered from that, even though I have my master's degrees, you know, it's like in the end we are treated the same, except in some in my position, there is passive, uh, aggressive language. And in my mother's, there's just more direct uh, um, uh, aggression and and oppression, you know, Um, maybe I'm jumping to here, but I'm, I'm, as you know, we, myself and uh, colleagues and former colleagues at Delarte published a statement uh, that challenges, um, Del Arte's practice and um, and in in toxic uh, culture and um, how white supremacy affects and has affected especially people of color and the organization the few that have come through there. Um, so, ah. Uh, Oh, uh, bring me back. Bring me back. I can bring. (laughs) Well, um, you're you're home now with your mom in Roswell. Yes. And you just drove back. I mean, this is something that really struck me. I I I talked about you earlier in an earlier episode because I find you really inspiring. But I was also really scared that you were driving across country during uh, a pandemic through all these rising hotspots. Yeah. With your cat. With my cat, he did great. Um, but what, what led you to the place of writing this letter that, um, was co-signed by a bunch of, uh, Del Arte alumni to Del Arte International? Um, so I've been at Del Arte three and a half years. Um, and, um, 
You know, when I came to Del Arte and I accepted the job, I knew that I was coming to a complex place because I had been in relationship with them as a student, as a, as an associate company member. And I've seen really wonderful people come through there and kind of like you see people come through Del Arte and stay for a few years and then they leave and you never quite know, but the one thing in common is like the common denominator is Del Arte, you know, it's like people pass through there. And so I knew um, that I was coming to a place that was complex and that I wanted to give the best uh, of myself. And also I really believed it was a place where I could grow as an educator. And so I promised myself that I would be honest with myself. I would honor myself and, and honor Del Arte and prioritize that relationship. Um, and that if I ever needed to leave, I would do it before things got ugly. <laughs> but, but you know, you don't, again, you don't have control of those things, you know? And yeah. I guess... There's, there's, I can say that things are ugly right now, but they're actually also be- like ugly, beautiful, you know, like it's painful, but I think there's great possibility. So mm-hmm. I came to write that statement because I was experiencing um, a lot of things that I didn't have the words to, to express. I was just experiencing a lot in my body, Um, you know, fear, uh, just things that you just, and you start, and I would doubt myself. And the only space I felt safe was in the classroom, in the studio with my students. Uh, There I felt free and I felt like I could, uh, that I was doing what I could, what I was doing with, and my students were, um, you know, was receiving the work and, and meeting me and evolving the work. So, so that was great. But then I would come to meetings or, and, and just experience things that were not pleasant. And, but I felt really isolated. I'm, uh, for three of, of these three and a half years, I've been one of two people of color in the organization. So I work for a predominantly white organization mm-hmm. and, um, and that made it really hard to, to, to decipher whether what I was feeling was real or if it was my own trauma from like childhood. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, um, well, I don't know. I don't experience it, but I can understand it and I don't think you're crazy. Yeah. So what, what happened was, um, that week of, um, that week, you know, that I think we'll all will remember as the week of George Floyd um, being, you know, just the country erupting in protests, like finally voicing um, the injustice mm-hmm. that has been happening here. Um, I was scheduled to go to a conference uh, with TCG, which is theater group. Theater Communication Group, which is the American hub for yeah. American theater. Um, and th- that Tuesday was supposed to be uh, 
the first day of conference and all the sessions were canceled and instead they created two new sessions. One was uh, a session for people of color, um, black and indigenous and people of color. And it was, it was called people of color who work at predominantly white organizations. Mm -hmm. And then the other session was called uh, anti-racist workshop for white people. And something shifted for me in that meeting. Um, I went to the group for BIPOCs and it was 178 people at that meeting on Zoom. And um, I remember for different reasons, people spoke and I was just like crying, you know, and people were just crying. I see faces on the screen and I'd have strangers write to me on the message and say, I see you, you know, you're not alone. Um, And then we had to write on a Google Doc, like what kinds of things we experience at at work. And I froze for a minute. And suddenly I see the cursor of others and they're typing all these things that I recognize. And so suddenly I feel like I was thinking those things, but I was afraid to type them because I was afraid that they were, you know, that I was going to get in trouble for typing them. And these things were like, you know, defensive emails, tokenized, uh, um, grant money, you know, misuse of grant money. Mm -hmm. Like, I mean, all these things that were happening to me at Delarte. And so that was huge. But the, the other thing that happened in that meeting is that at some point the organizers announced that there were, 1600 people at the other workshop at the anti-racist workshop. And that to me was for a moment. Wow. That's hopeful. You Mm -hmm. know, that that many people, that many white people are interested in anti-racist, um, uh, content. And then immediately I realized, wait a minute, all of us are members of TCG, And 178 of us, people of color, are sprinkled throughout the country working for them, for these 1,600 people, you know. And the visual of that, that how disproportionate this is, really hit me. And I came out of that meeting feeling really empowered and feeling like I'm not alone. And this is real. The inequity you know, the inequity yeah. in the field is real. And it was a big, it was a, it was a big moment because it, it, um, it reaffirmed what I was feeling and it made me and my, and my colleague at Delarte take this next step, which was to organize and, and, and voice, like voice what we were experiencing and, and go public because we had, attempted to do this internally and had been met with defensiveness, silence, um, you know, uh, reprimanding emails. Um, and so that's what's the impulse for this. It's like slowly finding the strength and the vocabulary to be able to, um, articulate what we were going through. Yeah, and and the letter that you composed is very clear. I found it very inspiring. Um, it's very scary to put things forward like that, but have you felt supported in putting it forward? 
Yeah, I, we have felt so much support from the community up in Humboldt, from the alumni, uh, you know, Del Arte alumni, yeah. and um, and now from our students, you know, students in within the school. Uh, not much support from Del Arte itself. Um, yeah. So what's they, what, yeah? What have the what have the what's the reaction been? A reply from Del Arte. So it's been a little over three weeks since we published that, and um, they were silent for a while. Then they did a couple of responses that were not helpful to them because they really were displaying. Um, some of the things we list on that le- on that yeah. statement yeah, that absolutely. come from white supremacy, they were defensive, they were not listening. Um, and then we have had we had one meeting with the board, and since then they've published a resolution um, on Monday. And the resolution, if you just read it, it, it looks good. It yep. it looks hopeful. Uh, but for me, I the only what I see is that it doesn't align with how they are behaving um, and how they're dealing with us people of color who still work for the organization. So they have ignored us. Nobody has addressed us directly. Mm-hmm. Um, leadership is hiding behind the board and statements that the board is making. Um, and this is very triggering for me. This silence um, perpetuates uh, harm. Th- their silence that they can afford uh, makes sure that they remain in this place of power. And and it's really, it really angers me, you know, that, that, how not doing anything, how being silent is, um, how damaging it is. Um, so that's been their response. The students reached out to the leadership at Del Arte asking for, um, some, an update of what's going on and they, uh, did not respond. And so students organized and have sent a letter internally uh, a beautiful letter, um, articulate and generous. Uh, so in support of our statement, but also clearly expressing their experience as students and w- what they have noticed, uh, whether they're white students or students of color, you know, um, and, yeah. the and Del Arte has not responded well. They've, they've, what I know that happened today, they responded. Um, I don't have the details because students are scared, but they're scared because of the way Del Arte responded. So that's all I know. Uh, and that's not okay. Students should not be scared of their, of the leadership of their school. No, that's unacceptable. Um, so it's a long, it's going to be a long journey, I think. Um, and it's it's not an easy or fun fun journey. No, and and this sort of work, this sort of overt activist work, is new for you. Or no? Um, you know, 
It's so bizarre. I, I just wrote an article uh, on clown and activism that is going to be published uh, with HowlRound, which is a, a digital uh, theater platform. Okay. Um, and I'll send you that. But yeah. in it, um, so this is one of the biggest, this is a definitive moment in my life. I think it's one of those moments I'm going to look back at and say, wow, I did that. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, it, but I have to say that this began um, uh, in 2013. I moved to Palestine. I went to work with the Freedom Theater in Palestine. Yeah. And, and I was very naive. I was, again, going to Palestine because there was an opportunity to work in theater. Um, and I went there very naive, you know, just naive. I, I didn't really understand the conflict in the Middle East because that's what the headline that we get in the U.S. is like conflict in the Middle East. And I never really bothered to dig deeper and, and try to understand what that conflict was. Um, so it's not until I'm there that I piece things together and I, um, Palestinians, um, wow, Palestinians were the first time that I saw in one body, I saw how anger, pain, and joy, profound, like, like never ending joy uh. can live in the same body. And I could not understand when I realized the con when I saw and I witnessed the conditions that Palestinians live under, I, I, I wanted to say, how, how do you remain this, this joyful, generous being? Palestinians are some of the most generous, amazing human beings that I've met. Mm -hmm. And, and I started going on protests there, but I, I will confess something that I've been reflecting on. Uh, recently I was talking to a friend that I met in Palestine and I was saying, Ben, do you remember when we were at that protest, um, where the, where the military, the Israeli military came and took our friend from New York? Um, and I was scared. I was paralyzed. I, I was afraid to stand up to them, you know. Um, meanwhile, yeah. my Palestinian friends were like at the front, like fighting, like throwing. And, and, and I was scared, you know. And, and I was scared to publish this statement. Uh, and my circumstances do not even compare to what I witnessed in Palestine. Right. Um, all this to say that um, this is the first big action that I, that is born from my heart, from my core, that it feels grounded in my feet. But, but I have to say my teachers in that were the Palestinian people, my students in Palestine. Um, and I, I want to be able to salvage in myself, uh, that joy and generosity that I witnessed in them. Um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and it's amazing. 
to, to, to be here and to not quite understand it yet. But, um, I know it's possible because I saw them. I saw, uh, and continue to see how they are resilient and beautiful and, and how is my question. And that's how is that possible? That's huge side. I'm feeling a lot of very similar things. Like, like I've showed up late to the game. Like there was so much that I didn't see, um, that how painful it was that I didn't see things I've done that are ignorant, you know, but there's a key thing there that I, that I hear what you're saying side of also like, I don't know how they're doing it, but I believe them. Yeah. And that's something I'm feeling in myself too, is that if I'm not the best person for the job, or if I don't have the most wisdom or knowledge or lived experience, then I have to look to who's having, who seems to know what they're doing Say, for instance, with Black Lives Matter, well, it's black yeah. leadership. Yeah. This has been the fight, the whole, the, you know, like the whole experience of a black person yeah. in Canada or America. So, and again, not every black person, but like the leadership is who I look to. If the news yeah. is telling me this, and I know it's run by white people, and like black leaders in my community are saying something different, yeah. I don't need to understand why they know that because I don't have the decades of knowledge and experience to just know. Yeah. I think that's really key. Yeah. 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 So there's been retaliation. Okay, and here's another thing. Okay. So in this letter that you wrote to them, to Delarte, like, what did you think the reaction would be? From What them? did I think it was going to be? Yeah. Um, or I could God. rephrase that. I could rephrase that. Yeah. Yeah. Like, what, what was your best hope as to how they could react? The best hope was um, that they would pause and they would say, thank you, I don't understand, mm -hmm. um, and I'm sorry that you have experienced this. We want to work to change this place. We value you here. <laughs> yeah. I want it. And that was like very, I can tell you when I was writing, when we were getting ready to publish that, I don't think I was like, this was a very, like, this was a wish far, far, far behind, uh, you know, like, like almost like a delusion, you know? Uh, but I, I swear that's what I wish. And we kept going to that place to be able to write what we wrote yep. so that it was received as a gift yep. uh, while also honoring our voices and our experience, you know, and no longer translating our, our pain, um, our very valid uh, experience. So, and then I was afraid that they would um, retaliate, you know, that they would, and, and I wasn't sure what that would look like, but I was afraid. And um, since we've published, I continue to be afraid sometimes. And other times, I'm really, um, I really fly. I feel like I'm flying in my body, like I'm grounded and flying at the same time in the certainty that this is necessary. Yep. Um, and that it is bigger than me and that... Um, uh, so they, they, they have retaliated by, 
being silent and also by saying things that um, that were really hurtful. Like uh, um, we, you know, one of the first letters that the board published on the North Coast Journal was, um, I hear, I hear you. However, I've known Del Arte for a long time and I, I would never imagine that they could cause this kind of harm. So oh, do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. 100%. Like, 100%. <laughs> I can't imagine it. Like, you're lying. You're crazy. That's what you're being told. Because mm-hmm. that's mm-hmm. not possible. What, yeah. What you're saying isn't possible. Yeah. So that was very hurtful and disappointing. And since then, they really have not... Um, they not they keep dig what I think is digging a bigger hole for themselves. Um, so who you know? Yeah. I, I'm I'm right now in in the just waiting to see what our next step is. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. I bring that up first of all. Thank you so much for sharing. I know this is painful stuff to be talking about. Um, yeah, but I also ask that because. I hope people will listen to podcasts like this and understand that w- what the goal is when people might call you out and it's not to rip you to shreds. You okay? Yeah. Yeah. It's okay. <laughs> oh, I miss you. I know. I I miss you and Maria. Yeah. Uh, and I know where, well, this is the beginning of coming back together. It is. It's wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. We've really been called back together <laughs> <laughs> as old ladies. We look pretty good. Um, we do. <laughs> but it's, it's to go back to this is to understand. There's a couple points that I kind of want to make, even though this is very much your story. One, like if you're called out, it is being done as an act of generosity. Now, I have been called out in my life too. It was not pleasant. I did not react in all the best ways, but everything was better on the other side. And I was told that. You know, I was told being called out isn't going to be bad. If you don't fight it, it will be good. And the other thing that I really have been, th- that came to me a couple of weeks about, or a few weeks ago about all of this is like, we talk about things like, you know, a Jewish theater company or a black theater company or a Hispanic theater company. Well, if y- most of the spaces I've worked in are white theater companies. Yeah. And they have to understand that about themselves. They are white companies. And if you don't want to be a white company, because I actually have no clue why one should exist, except for white supremacy, then you have to realize you are a white company or a white business, um, say a venue or, you know, Second City, which I think they are acknowledging that, I hope. Yeah. Um, You have to acknowledge that you are that and figure out how to not be that. And that th- the answers also might not be come from the white people who are in charge. Intrinsically, maybe they can't. Yeah. Yeah. But it's also really important. Oh, how are you? I'm good. Okay. <laughs> it's also a really important point, I think, that um, what you said about I don't know what's coming next. That's been another thing that I've been seeing happen and have experienced where people are like, well, what am I supposed to do? And I'm like, it doesn't matter. We're taking little baby first steps now. Yeah. We don't actually knowing what the solution is before you go in isn't really getting through the problem. 
and that is something I think we all um, need to keep our antenna, you know, up for because mm-hmm. it's so that part of white supremacy is so ingrained in all of us. Oh yeah, um, I, I feel it in me. Yeah. Uh, this sense of like fixing, and and so in some ways the resolution that Delarte has put out, I see it as uh, as a way of fixing something rather than actually being vulnerable and open to the discomfort that, that, that we've mentioned, you know, here and talking that that is part of the process, that there's got to be a space for transformation um, rather than a fix. It's not today we are this and starting tomorrow we are that, you know, um, yeah. something else. And, and, I, and, and healing, you know, and heal, healing. healing isn't something that just happens like when you flick a switch. Healing is, I mean, I think about the harm I've done and I think about the harms done to me. Well, all of that's going to be lifelong stuff to continue to address. It doesn't just yeah. stop. Yeah. Yeah. So this pause is a big one, I think. And uh, and then it's an interesting pause and silence, right? I, I, I'm still really like um, wrestling with that because what does it mean to pause? What does it mean to be silent? What is it, you know, mm-hmm. ah, it's uh, it's complicated and complex. Yeah. Well, I can say as someone who went to Del Arte, my experience there did not make me think that any of the stuff you put forward was impossible. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's an elitist place based on like white European theater masters. Yeah. Like, and one thing I noticed, Becky, when I was when I started being full time there, is that, um, and it took me a while to articulate it. But you know, diversity—I hate that word. Mm-hmm. But uh, before where we are now, which I think it's a little bit ahead, is uh, people wanted diversity, and um, and I kept I I kept telling Delarte, you have to understand that international is not diverse Mm. international comes with privilege who can come study in the middle of nowhere in this beautiful place you know it's like uh, that's you don't get to say you're diverse because you're international it's great to be international but when i don't have the privilege of saying i'm from guatemala because if i was an actual student from guatemala who grew up in Guatemala and got to study at Del Arte, it would mean that I was part of the 3% of people in Guatemala who have all the wealth, you know? Right. And, and so that's not the same. I am, and I am the daughter of immigrants, and that means something. And those voices, when we have African-American students at Del Arte, and we also have students from uh, an African country, that's different, you know? Yeah. It, yeah. It, it, so if we have a Mexican student from Mexico and we have uh, a Mexican American student from Orange County, it's different. And you have, to, we have to understand that. Well, and also, um, yeah. And also people without means. I mean, my, the way that I got to Del Arte was that I worked for two years, both in jobs that my parents had either given me or helped me get and lived at home. So yes. that speaks to all the privilege that I 
had. I had a place to stay. My father had a well-paying job in the fishing industry that could employ me. So I did not apply for that job. And I had space to save up money and not have to work for anything else. I mean, that's gigantic. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of other very talented people from my exact same town that didn't have that. Right. I remember that, Becky. I remember your job, your fishing job. Yeah, because I drove down with my dad. (laughs) Right from the fishing boat. Yeah. Um, What are you doing to take care of yourself right now, Saida? Well, I'm home, which is... um, which is uh, strange um, because I left home for many reasons and I would always come back, but never to stay for too long. And the support that my family has offered during this time has been amazing. Um, So I feel really, really lucky to be able to come home for the first time, actually have like a, uh, what I think you're describing a little bit, you know, like the support that your parents can offer you when you need it, like like the support your 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 father or your they gave you when yeah. you needed to save money to come to school. Like I, I never had that, and I think and my mom can give me that now. You know, it's like yeah. I can come and live in her house without paying rent, and you know, and that's um, it feels so good, and it makes me want to cry because it's just like wow, this is so amazing so that's one thing i feel wow amazed to be able to experience is to have the support um of my family in that way and also i'm walking uh i'm walking four miles every morning at five in the morning and i'm doing strengthening work uh uh, like resistance work um with like small weights and um getting some physical strength and I'm eating really well Mm. and I'm writing, you know, so I'm, I'm in an environment that feels cozy and I am able to tackle some difficult things that are happening right now, like this thing with Delarte, but also eat well and, and exercise, which is, um, a good way to restore, uh, some of the hardship and uh, emotional um, hardship that I've been through this year. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I have so many more questions. Um, like, well, I mean, I, I'm very um, disturbed to think about the education you had coming up against your, your, your culture and your lived experience. I guess the question is, how has the decolonizing process been for you in your art? Um, it's, um, it's painful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> it's painful, Becky, because, um, uh, it's, it's, um, I, I'm, I, uh, yeah, it, it, it's, it's like, it's, I'm, I feel I have so much to learn right now about where I come from. And that is another reason why coming home also is, is, is symbolic of something that I've been, um, you know, I've been writing, um, I'm writing a chapter for a book. I think I mentioned, uh, about Mm -hmm. decolonizing theater training and 
in that, in that I have a phrase, you know, where I say, uh, mom, I'm coming back to you. And, um, my editor, uh, sent me, uh, notes on the last, I'm, I'm, I'm rewriting the final draft. And she said, this sentence is, um, what does this mean? It's so powerful. You can, you write more about this. And, um, this in between place I talked about in the beginning, um, there is that in between, there's a translation that I've, my life has been a translation. And so, uh, coming, decolonizing means for me, um, not translating anymore, but how do I do that? When, when my life, who I've become is in English, you know, and, and, and I'm writing to my mom who doesn't speak English. Um, and I'm trying to explain to her in my chapter what, what I do and what I, why, and my questions. And so coming back to her means coming back to learning where I really come from and, uh, the wisdom that I had and that, that because of, because of where I come from, there are stories in, in the Mayan, uh, uh, mythology, there are mask practices, there are voice practices. And, you know, and so I, I know more about rituals in Bali than I do of like rituals in, in Mayan culture, you know, in Guatemala. So coming back means really embracing my mother's journey as an immigrant and and then going even further back to my ancestors my indigenous um uh ancestors and and just just going back to swimming in that in that knowledge and knowing that that is power that that is what I, uh, I that I that's in me already, yeah. and and then how to reconcile that with who I am because I don't want to throw away what I learned at CalArts or Del Arte or Central, but but I know I had to change myself to take that education, and and so I need to, I want to undo that, yeah. Um, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. It does. The, I mean, it's supremacy that that education isn't the supreme thing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, I know it's, I've always seen, I've always known it's in you. <laughs> Something is. Something. Yeah. You know, and these systems of education and performance are too rigid. Yeah. On all counts. Yeah. It's not sustainable, uh, and young people are—they uh, give me hope, you know, um, because they're all students, white and BIPOC. They want to be in a place where this dialogue um, is happening, you know, 
uh, not yeah. where we're hiding behind or no uh, transparency, yeah. openness. Yeah. Um, what do you, what do you want for yourself next? Mm. Um, I want, um, I want, I can't, I don't know, I don't know what I'm going to be doing, but I know that what I want is for me to not be so careful <laughs> as I try to put that sentence together. Like no longer ask permission, no longer just be grateful, no longer just, uh, say thank you and work really hard. Uh, that's, that's, that's part of who we all are, you know, but, um, I want to just give myself permission to, to really, um, to, to keep speaking, to, to keep stirring things up to what I want for myself is to, um, uh, to be just to keep being, to be brave and to make, uh, to, what it feels like right now is like, it's like soil. Like I'm, like I'm moving the soil mm -hmm. so that new, so that this, uh, something else can be, uh, um, Oh, what's the word when you, in Spanish is cosechar. Is it aer aerating the soil or turning the soil? Yeah, turning the soil, but you do it for harvest. Yeah. yeah. When you, so that something new can be harvested, you know? Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. So when I connect to that, I feel, <laughs> I feel really great sense of possibility uh -huh. and um, joy. And um, yeah, I feel, I feel, feel that yeah that's what I want good <laughs> good well thank you for chatting with me Saida thank you thank Becky. you so much for sharing it's so beautiful to hear your voice again I miss you <laughs> I miss you this is the beginning yeah another yeah, it beginning is. it is yeah. it absolutely is all right um where can people find your writing online Oh, so, um, let's see. So my website is Saida, S-A-Y-D-A, Teatrera, which is T-E-A-T-R-E-R-A dot com. And Teatrera means theater maker. And um, there's a blog there that has been inactive, but there's a couple of uh, entries. One is my an article I wrote about my time in Palestine. And the other is an article on uh, some work I did in Colombia. And then I'm thinking of going, restarting that blog and writing about what's happening now. But my article on uh, clown and activism will be published at, in HowlRound. Um, and I'll send you that link. And then the chapter for the book is with Rutledge. And it should be published some uh, later this year or at the beginning of next year. Okay. Um, and on Instagram, I'm at Saida QP. Um, that Q is in Queen and P as in Pie. 
Um, Okay. Well, we'll post some links. Uh, Thank you again. And goodbye, Saida. Goodbye, Becky. See you down the road. (laughs) Yeah. H-Word Podcast is produced by me, Becky Johnson, from Parkdale in Toronto, Canada. Artwork this week by Andrea Vela Alarcon, and our theme music, as always, by Laura Barrett. For information on all our artists and guests, please follow us everywhere at the H-Word Pod, or sign up for our newsletter at thehwordpod.com. Music